Luke 7, verse 1 to 23. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, he pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves your, our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man, man under authority, with soldiers under me. I'll tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Jesus raises a widow's son. Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the beard they were carrying him on, and the bearers stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Jesus and John the Baptist John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them. He sent to them the Lord to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? When the, man came, when the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to talk us to you to ask, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? At that very time, Jesus cured many who had diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits and gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messenger, Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Let's pray as we look at the Bible together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would help us again to see Jesus clearly. We pray today that you'd help us to think about what it means to have our trust and our faith in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Looking through Luke's Gospel, there are layers to it. It does make you think. Today, I reckon it makes us think about what faith is and how faith works. So I'll tell you a bit of a story that might get you thinking about what it means to trust someone, what it means to have faith in someone. Back in 2012, 
um, Lyndall and I took the kids for a holiday to India. It was a holiday. It was mainly a holiday. It was also a chance for them to see where my brothers and I went to boarding school. A bit of um, you know, education, make them respect their parents better, that sort of thing. Um, and it was also, I reckon, a chance for the kids to see what life's like overseas and appreciate that much more what we have. You have to plan a trip like that. You have to plan ahead. And so we planned that we would spend some time first in the south and go to some of the same guest houses we went to as kids. I can tell you about that another time. We also then planned to go to Mumbai and then up to the north and do, you know, the, the Golden Triangle. So Delhi, Jaipur and Agra. And for that last bit, we were told, have someone drive. Don't try, you know, hiring cars and driving yourself in India. And you didn't need to tell me that. We wouldn't have tried it. Anyway, I had a look around on the internet and I came across this group called Classic Taj Tours. It sounded good. But would you book something over the internet? in India. There's a trust issue here, isn't there? So I rang this guy who I'd been contact, uh, emailing with. His name was Mohammed Saad. I rang him to make sure he was real. And that improved the trust. There was a bit more faith that this man would actually do what he said he would do. I made sure that we didn't pay up front. We just paid a small deposit. But even at that point of transferring, transferring that deposit across, there was, uh, yeah, I had to be convinced that we could trust, that we could have faith in Mr. Saad that he would honour his side of the deal. A little bit later, we put some more trust in Mr. Saad. I was trying to book an overnight train trip from Mumbai to Delhi because we wanted to kind of, well, I wanted to relive some of those, you know, experiences we had on the overnight train in India and let the kids suffer some of it too. But I couldn't work out how to book the train. So I got back to Mr. Saad and he said, I can do that for you. And so he did. We trusted him with that as well. We had faith that he would book our train. In the meantime, there was conversations with my brother-in-law, and he's often been to India for work, and he just said, you're stupid. You're completely nuts. The arrangement was that we would get off the train in, in Delhi and meet our driver. And my brother-in-law was of the opinion, you can't trust Mr. Saad. Your faith in him is misplaced. There won't be anyone on that platform. We um, made it to India. We travelled around in the, in the south, um, we eventually came to the station in Mumbai and our tickets were honoured. We weren't thrown off the train. That was a very good start. But our trust in Mr. Saad was sorely tested when we got off the train in Delhi because there was no one there. So I rang. Thankfully, he picked up. That's a good sign. He was very apologetic, another good sign. He said, stay right where you are. And then he rang back and apparently the driver mixed up the carriages and was waiting out. It all worked out is what I'm saying. But, you know, that little story, as you, as you think it through, trust, faith, they're very similar, aren't they? That's what we mean to have faith in someone. We mean to trust them, to rely on them. Um, it helps you think about what faith can be like. And there's more you can say about faith. It's, it's miserable to live in the world without being able to trust anybody, without being able to have faith in anyone. It's just a horrible situation to be in. There are times when our faith is misplaced, there is such a thing as blind faith in a person which can lead to all sorts of mess because there's people out there who aren't worthy of the faith or the trust that we put in them. The more you know about a trustworthy person, the more confidence you can have to put your faith in them. They'll honour their side of things. Um, the more you can trust them for things that are outside your ability to do anything about, like train tickets. And so far, everything I've said... Yeah, you will have noticed faith, trust, reliance, they're all pretty much the same thing. But we've also allowed this word faith to take on another kind of meaning, haven't we? 
We might use faith to refer to a person's belief system. In Australia, faith has become kind of synonymous with religion. And at some point, the religion-type faith kind of overlaps with irrational thought, doesn't it? It starts to blend in with mysticism, things that are completely disconnected from what you see in life, your reality that you live. And I think Christians have helped this, helped fuel this kind of redefinition of what it means to have faith because Christians sometimes describe our faith as something we can't explain. Christians will sometimes say that they've chosen to trust God when they don't know how anything's going to work out. But on that one, when you stop and think about it, when you trust God in situations that are beyond your control, you're actually not having a blind faith. Your faith is based on what you know about God. Your faith is based on past experience. It's actually an informed trust. So let's take care not to you know, misuse this word trust and confuse ourselves. When we come to the Bible, let's be thinking, when, we, when you think of faith, you think trusting, relying, depending, those sorts of words. A bit like our trust in Mr. Saad or like the trust you might have in any other person. So as Christians, our trust is in a particular person. It's in, our trust is in Jesus. And our trust in Jesus is informed by what we know about Jesus. The more we know about Jesus, because he is trustworthy, the more we will have our faith in him. And then we show our faith by what we do. We act on our faith. Um, when we talk about faith in those ways, you can, say, you can see that faith is not just a Christian quality. Faith is something anybody can have. Even someone who says they're not a Christian, well, they're trusting that Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. They might be trusting that the Bible is not for real. You've got your faith in an inanimate object right now. You're trusting a seat will hold you up. So faith is everywhere, is what I'm saying. Our passage today gets us thinking about faith and specific, specifically faith in Jesus, what it looks like to trust Jesus. And it begins by Luke telling us about this centurion who trusted Jesus. The centurion who trusted Jesus to heal his servant. And can I draw your attention to verse 9? So if you just skip down to verse 9, 7 verse 9. Jesus is amazed at the centurion, it says. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This centurion is not a Jew. And Jesus says he's not seen such great faith anywhere in Israel. Verse 9, it says Jesus was amazed at the man. Your version might say that he marveled at this man. As you've been going through Luke, you would have seen a lot of people have marveled at Jesus. But this is the first time and the only time you'll see Jesus marvel at anybody. And if you do a bit of a word search, you'll discover actually there's only one other place in the New Testament that Jesus marvels at someone, and that's in um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, where he is amazed or he marvels at the unbelief of the people in Nazareth. Luke tells us Jesus was amazed at this Gentile centurion. He marveled at him. He doesn't, Luke doesn't tell us the name of the guy. We don't know who he is, but all what we do know is that Jesus marvels at him and he explains the reason he is amazed to those who will listen. He says, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. And so the first question on your sermon outline is, what makes Jesus say that? What makes him say, I've not found such great faith even in Israel? So come back to the beginning of the chapter and we'll pick it up there. 7 verse 1, when Jesus had finished saying all this, remember he's given this kind of this discipleship training, the Sermon on the Plain or a bit like the Sermon on the Mount. 
to anyone. It says, when Jesus had finished saying all this, all that teaching, to people who were listening, he entered Capernaum, and there a centurion's servant, whom his father valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So far, there's nothing particularly remarkable. We've seen Jesus do all sorts of miracles, and you kind of anticipate, here comes another one. But there's something a little bit odd. This man asked Jesus to come to him. I'm not sure that we've seen anyone do that yet. But as Luke goes on, I reckon it's likely he asked Jesus to come to him because he thinks he's not worthy to go to Jesus. It's like his sort of last-ditch effort, ask the Jews to help, to ask their friend Jesus to... But he doesn't feel like he's worthy himself. And so verse 4, when they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. Notice what the elders think of this man. We'll come back to it. Verse 6, so Jesus went with them. He was not far away from the house when the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself. For I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. There it is. He knows that he's not worthy to come anywhere near Jesus. And so he sends messengers ahead. And when he hears that Jesus is coming back to his place, he sends more messengers to say, you don't have to do it. Don't trouble yourself. And that's not all he says in verse 7. He goes on, but say the word and my servant will be healed. This centurion, remember his servant, is near to death, close to death. He trusts that Jesus can fix that without even being there, that Jesus can just speak and his servant will be healed. And his message through his friends explains his reasoning. Verse 8, for I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I told this one go and he goes and that one come and he comes. I say to my servant, do this and he does it. As a centurion under Rome, he has the power of Rome. As a, serv- as, as, as a centurion in this chain of command, he knows what it's like to give instructions. You've seen it in this passage. He sent the Jewish elders. Then he sends his friends. This man trusts that Jesus is even greater, has even more power, and can do a similar thing on a massive scale, that he can just speak and this servant will be healed. So this is, it's not a blind trust in Jesus. He's heard about Jesus, heard what Jesus can do. He adds to that his own understanding, his own experience of how authority works. It's an informed trust, which in verse 10 results in his servant being healed and perhaps Jesus never even meeting him. But our attention's drawn in at verse 9 where Jesus says he's amazed at this man. He marvels at him. Can you see why he marvels at him? His trust, his faith. And then Jesus says to the crowd, I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. We know Luke doesn't record any of this by accident. This is deliberate. It's here for a reason. Remember, he's writing his gospel to help Theophilus see that Jesus is the Messiah. Everything is recorded purposefully, orderly, for a reason. So our question is, well, what does Luke show us about the faith in Israel then? He marvels at this man and says, I've not seen such great faith even in Israel. What does he show us about faith in, this, in Israel in this passage? You'll see that um, is the next question in the sermon outline. But before we come to that, let me show you something else. Come to the end of the passage. Look at verse 23. Verse 23 says, Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. 
Some translations say, blessed are anyone who is not offended on account of me. They're trying to translate a word which is a little bit unusual in this context. It doesn't feel like it fits. If you look up, it occurs 27 times in the New Testament. You flick through them and time after time, it's this idea of causing to sin. So you'd want to translate, blessed is anyone who is not caused to sin by me. That's odd. It pops up twice, in, once in 1 Corinthians, once in 2 Corinthians, where we translate it, cause to stumble, don't cause your brother to stumble, that sort of idea. It's only one other time here in Luke that I'm aware of, in chapter 17, where he says, it would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. And so look at verse 23 again. Blessed is everyone who does not stumble on account of me. In the context, it appears to be saying, blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble at Jesus' claims. Blessed be anyone who isn't um, trapped, ensnared by what Jesus does. Verse 23, I think, is an encouragement to trust Jesus rather than stumble. And keep that in mind as we go back up through the passage and look at faith in Israel in the passage. You see, this passage, it makes you think about what it means to trust, doesn't it? What it means to depend. Keep all that in mind. Consider Jesus' statement again. So I tell you, I've not found such great faith even in Israel. What do we learn about faith in Israel in the passage? Well, look at verses 4 and 5. These elders of the Jews, they place great importance in what the centurion has done for Israel. This centurion is worthy in their eyes for Jesus to show favour to because of what he has done for them. So verse 4 says, this man deserves to have you do this. The centurion himself doesn't think he deserves anything. And that's one of the things that makes Jesus marvel at him. But in Israel, they think he has earned the right for Jesus to show favour to him. It's a bit weird when you think about that. I mean, how do you earn favour from someone? How do you earn a gift? How do you? It's a little bit strange. There's something strange going on when you think that you can earn someone's favour. Um, you probably notice, though, that people are still doing the same thing today, trying to earn Jesus' favour. We can tend to do it, can't we? If we're honest with ourselves, we have to admit that we've caught ourselves doing it, thinking we can earn Jesus' favour by being kind to people. You know, help an old lady across the road over here means you can earn, it, it's, there's a logic gap there thinking we can earn Jesus, Jesus to even notice us. One of the things about being a Christian is that we start being a Christian by recognising what the centurion did, that we're not worthy. Becoming a Christian means humbly admitting that you're not worthy of what Jesus has done for you in dying your death for you. Becoming a Christian starts with that kind of humility to see that you don't deserve. And so Jesus marvels at the centurion while his Jewish leaders have another way of looking at things. There's something... More about their faith in verse 5. These elders, these Jews, they have their faith, it seems like, a faith that's centred on themselves as a nation, maybe. And so the reason they think the man deserves Jesus' favour is because of how this man's treated Israel, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue, in verse 5. It's like they assess a person's actions based on how they treat the nation of Israel. Like their trust is kind of actually in their nationality, perhaps, these Jews. What's Luke showing us about the faith in Israel? Well, you can think those things through more in verses 4 and 5. 
It's not a great picture, though. The elders of the Jews think that people can earn Jesus' favour by being nice to Jews. Next thing uh, Luke tells us is Jesus doesn't even greater miracles. So you keep reading through the passage. Remember the centurion's servant was near to death? The next thing we see is a person who is dead, and Jesus brings him back to life. Um, Luke tells us in verse 13 that Jesus was driven by his compassion for this woman. This woman, she's a widow. Her only son has died. She's going to be left with nothing. She is left with nothing. She's cut off in this, in this world. And Jesus speaks, and the boy comes to life again. There's no hint here of this woman deserving Jesus' favour. Jesus does it out of compassion. She didn't even ask Jesus to do it. And maybe that's what Luke's making us notice. Neither she nor this crowd of people mourning with her even thought that Jesus could fix this situation. It starts to stand in contrast to the centurion, doesn't it? I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. These people didn't even think to ask Jesus. These Jews, uh, these are Jews. So in verse 11, Nain is in Israel. Verse 17 says um, what Jesus did spread throughout the whole area of Judea. This is another example of faith or not faith in Israel. No one asked Jesus to intervene. Maybe they didn't trust that Jesus could do anything to help. And their response shows that they didn't expect that Jesus would do what he did. Um, And I think that's another thing we can still see around us today, isn't it? People not even thinking to ask Jesus for help. The centurion, he, he saw what Jesus could do to help. But so often we're not seeing what Jesus can do to help with anything like the confidence that that man had. Um, maybe we have our confidence in our nation. What's the response from the crowd? Well, if you look at verses 16 and 17, verse 16, they fear. Verse 16, they give glory to God. They call Jesus a great prophet. And if you remember on our way through 1 and 2 Kings last year, Elijah and Elisha do similar kinds of miracles, don't they? But Luke's not finished. Uh, but, but I wonder, though, they recognize Jesus as, a, as a, a prophet. I wonder if the point is they don't actually recognize him as the Messiah. They don't put all this together. They don't see who Jesus really is. And so Jesus says, in this centurion, he sees the kind of faith you can't even see in Israel. Luke's not finished, though. He tells us about John. We've still got verse 9 in the back of our minds. I tell you, I've not found such great faith in Israel. Verse 18, John the Baptist hears about Jesus' miracles, presumably even just these two things he's done now, and his response is to question if Jesus is the one he prepared the way for. You're hearing that? It's John the Baptist, the one who baptized Jesus, said, one greater than me is coming after me. He's now saying, Jesus, are you the one? He's doubting. You've got verse 23 in mind, haven't you? His response is to question if Jesus is the one, and and Luke uses repetition to underline the significance of this question. So verse 18, John's disciples told him about all these things, calling two of them, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Sending messages to talk to Jesus, we've seen the centurion do it, but this is the same message that we hear repeated twice in verse 20. When the men came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? 
why would John need to ask that? If he's been preparing the way for Jesus, why would he need to ask that? If not because he's stumbling, verse 23. In verse 18, John's reacting to what he hears about Jesus and it causes him to question, to stumble. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, says Jesus in verse 23. Why would John react neg negatively? Well, back in chapter 3, verses 19 to 20, Luke told us John ends up in prison. At least one commentator, the kind of commentator that Steve Young reads, suggested that maybe he's depressed. He was pointing it out as kind of a random thought. More likely, John's not seeing Jesus do what he expected. More likely, John shares the kind of trust in his nation that the leaders of the elders of the Jews have. More likely, he has this trust that his nation will be restored. And yes, it will, but not the way that John thinks it will. And so he's seen this stuff thinking, what's going on? And Jesus sends the messages back in verse 22. Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and good news is proclaimed to the poor. It's like quoting the Old Testament back at John and saying, have another rethink of what's happening here. But the point is, John stumbles at Jesus and his claims, and he's not the only one who struggles to trust in Jesus. You might be another one. Jesus is not being nasty to John. He's trying to help him. He's pointing him back. If you look ahead beyond our passage, if you look ahead at verse 28, look what he says about John. I, I tell you, among those born of a woman, there is no one greater than John yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. It's like he's not saying John's not in the kingdom of God, but he's not in the kingdom of God because he deserves it, which yet again makes us think about the centurion who knew that he didn't deserve any of this. So you're looking across this part of Luke, yeah, there's layers to it. You can keep talking about all these bits that I've pointed out to you, but it makes us think about faith and it makes us think particularly about faith in Jesus and what that looks like. And I think it, and it ends with that challenge in verse 23, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. As you hear about Jesus, as you hear about everything he has done, blessed are you when you don't stumble, but in fact you have faith and trust in him. And the centurion jumps out of this passage at us as the man that Jesus said he'd never seen such great faith, not even in Israel. And so I suppose the question for us is, if you think that your faith in Jesus is somewhat like this centurion's faith. If you, if you look at it and break it down, what he does is he asks for help. So he sends the messages. He asks for help. He knew that he didn't deserve it. And he trusted Jesus completely, trusted Jesus' power completely. And that's the kind of faith that we want to have as followers of Jesus. I'm going to pray for us that we would be able to have that kind of faith and I'm hoping there's more that you'll keep talking about and then we'll pick up next week with the next bit of the passage. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we know that we are not worthy, that we don't deserve. Lord, we know that we are sinful. We know that the only thing we do deserve is wrath and judgment. But Lord, we thank you for your compassion. We thank you for your kindness. Thank you for sending your son Jesus to die our death for us. 
even when we didn't think to ask for help. But Lord, we ask for help now. We pray that you would forgive us. We pray that you would forgive us for ignoring you. We pray that you would forgive us for disobeying you. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to keep trusting in Jesus and living for him with everything that we have. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.